Hello. I hope that's working. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to read the scriptures to you. Um, we're today looking at Matthew chapter 14, verses 47 to 75. So that's page 997 in the church Bibles. And for those of you who might be new to the Bible, the chapters are the big numbers and the verses are the little numbers down the page. So starting at verse 47, the passage we're reading starts where Jesus is in the garden with his disciples um, in Gethsemane, and he has just said, here comes my betrayer. So, reading now. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this all has to take place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the, the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. 
Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to you all, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a cock crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Thanks, Claire. Uh, morning. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name is Jonathan. Uh, I'm one of the other uh, pastors on side, uh, Nathan and, and Tim. I'm just going to raise this a little bit. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, this passage together, uh, maybe a familiar passage, uh, a passage that if we've been around church for a bit, we, we know, but we, it would be good to uh, have God speak to us as we look at the last few days of Jesus' life, particularly as we run up to uh, Easter. So why don't we pray for us? And then we can uh, have a little look at this, uh, this part of the life and, uh, and biography of Jesus. Heavenly Father, as we look at this familiar story of what Jesus went through for us, uh, please would your Holy Spirit help us to come to a deeper appreciation of Jesus. Would no one uh, be more impressive or, or more wonderful than Jesus as we look at uh, his life and what he went through so that people could be saved and forgiven and have a hope of eternity. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> There's a phrase uh, in, in, in English which uh, says this, familiarity breeds contempt. I'm sure we, we've known that phrase. I'm sure uh, we've, we've used that phrase sometimes. It means this, uh, long association with a person or a situation uh, can lead to losing maybe a little bit of respect for that person or maybe careless for that situation. Or it could, it could uh, apply to other things. So sometimes friends come to visit me uh, in London, and because I'm now used to living in London, I go around and take them uh, around the sites of London, and they're like, yeah, why? <laughs> this, is, this is really great. And I'm thinking, well, you know, it's just London. You know, I, I live here. 
uh, familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? I've slightly lost the, the wowness of, of the architecture and the history of, the, of central London. Maybe you can see it in, in this building here. Um, I think most people, if they've come from churches uh, around the country, come to this building and they say, wow, this is an amazing building to have. And yet, if we've been around this building for a, a, a number of uh, years, then actually we just think to ourselves, well, it's just normal, you know, I, I don't think it's anything particularly special. Uh, but maybe you were around when this building first opened, January 2012. Can you remember your, uh, your, um, your response to walking into this building? I, I guess it was definitely wow, because we used to meet, meet in a school building. Uh, but maybe over, year, over the time, over the years, that wowness has just declined, and it's now just very ordinary, very, whatever, you know, it's it's an okay building, it's a bit cold at the moment, but hey, um, familiarity breeds contempt. The concerning thing, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that familiarity can breed contempt when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to um, the Christian life, it comes to reflecting uh, on the cross of, of Jesus and what Jesus went through to do that. Because we reflect on it so often, it doesn't produce a, a wow in us anymore. Maybe when you first read it, you were blown away about what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago. But now it's like, well, okay, uh, you know, I, I know I should feel a little bit different about this, but it, I, I, it's familiar to me, what, you know, whatever. And so we're going to allow the Bible to break off familiarity with, with Jesus so that we can move from just saying, you know, whatever, to saying, wow, again, just to see how much Jesus did for us on that cross that first Easter. So, um, so first, understand Jesus went willingly to the cross for you and for me. Understand that Jesus went willingly to the cross for you and for me. Some people uh, I meet, some people I hear say the death of Jesus, well, you know, it's just a tragic accident. You know, you know he, he is a young man, 33 years old, a bit of a shame that a promising life ended like that. Other people say, well, actually, God the Father twisted the unwilling arm of Jesus to take the divine punishment against human sin on the cross. It was all God the Father's idea, and Jesus reluctantly went along with it. Matthew says the man who knew Jesus, who saw Jesus, who ate with Jesus, says this, Jesus went to the cross willingly, willingly for you, willingly for me. As Claire was saying uh, before the reading last week, we, we left Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying with, uh, uh, well, uh, the, the disciples were sleeping, but praying uh, in the garden to his, uh, to his father to take away the need to go to the cross. He said, if there's any other way that can be found rather than me going to the cross and uh, suffering the judgment that humans should suffer in their place, then Father, please, please take that. Please uh, find a way out. And you know, God, God always answers prayer. Answers prayer in three ways. Yes, no, or not yet. And in this case, he said, no. There is no other way for human beings to be forgiven and be brought back into relationship with God. My son, you need to go to the cross. 
You need to die the death and suffer the punishment they should have suffered so that they can be forgiven. And so with the battle inside Jesus' soul over, he's now resolutely walking to the cross. He wakes up the sleeping disciples, Peter, James, and John. And according to verse 46, he resolutely walks towards the crowd who's coming to arrest him, to take him away, to lead him to the cross. And that large crowd is is led by someone who should have been his friend, Judas. He was put one of the 12 disciples that that Jesus uh, chose um, to follow follow him. And they're armed to the teeth with swords and clubs. They're thinking there's going to be a fight here. We're going to come to arrest Jesus. And so they've got clubs and and swords to, 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 to fight. However, they didn't know what Jesus looked like. There's no Instagram, there's no photos back then. Very few people would have been able to recognize Jesus, uh, particularly most of his ministers in the north of the country. Uh, this is the capital city, Jerusalem. He wouldn't have been easily recognizable. But Judas had, had been with Jesus for three years. He knew exactly what Jesus looked like. And so what he did, he arranged a secret signal uh, with the crowd, uh, and he said, the person that I kiss... The person that I uh, greet in a, in a very friendly way, that is Jesus. Arrest him. Take him away. And so Judas walks up to Jesus, greets him with a term of respect, rabbi, and kisses him. And Judas' outward actions are ones of, they seem to say, respect and honor. But he reeks with hypocrisy. Judas' kiss is literally, for Jesus, the kiss of death because the soldiers arrest Jesus and begin manhandling him out out of the garden towards Jerusalem to stand trial uh, in front of all the religious leaders. And did you notice, Jesus goes without a fight. He's willingly going to the cross. However, not every one of, the, of them are on the same page. One disciple has armed himself, and he is ready to rumble. Verse 51 tells us that one of the disciples draws a sword, uh, lops off the ear of the high priest's servant. He's ready to fight. And we don't know who, who he is in this gospel. If you go to John's gospel, we learn, surprise, surprise, it's Peter. It's Peter with the sword, not the sword of the Bible, but a real sword that you know, causes real damage. Impulsive Peter decides, I'm ready to fight. What does Jesus do? He orders Peter to put away his weapon because he doesn't need his help. Have a look down at verse 52. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Now, back in Roman times, the Roman army was made up of legions. One legion in the Roman army was 6,000 men. And so Jesus could have assembled an angelic army of over 72,000 angels to fight for him. He didn't need Peter's puny swords to fight for him. He got, he got back up he, that, uh, that would have wiped out any army. But you know what? He chose not to assemble the angels. Why? Well, because he was following this divine plan that he and his heavenly father had designed before the time begun, before the universe was created. Have a look at verse 54. But you know, if I fight my way out of this with my angelic army, 
How then would the Scriptures, how would then the Old Testaments be fulfilled that, it, that, it set, that say it must happen this way? It's not entirely obvious which particular part of the Old Testaments uh, uh, Jesus is referring to. Maybe he's referring to uh, the, uh, the prophet Zechariah, 400, 500 years before uh, Jesus. This is what Zechariah said. Awake, sword, against my shepherds, against the man who's close to me. Who's speaking? Actually, it's God, declares the Lord Almighty. It's God who's speaking that. Strike the shepherds, and the sheep will be scattered, and I'll turn my hands against the little ones. And so Zechariah predicts that God the Father will strike Jesus the shepherd. And that happened on the cross when his anger against human sin, human rebellion, human rejection fell on Jesus at the cross. And Jesus turns from speaking to the disciples to speaking to the crowd in verse 55. Have, have a look at the, what he says to this arresting crowd. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. And so Jesus is saying, look, you've had every opportunity to arrest me when I was teaching the temple courts. You've had a week to do it, and you didn't do it. He's basically saying, you're cowards. They didn't arrest Jesus in the temple because that was in public. And they were afraid that that would spark a riot in the crowd. Instead, they arrest Jesus in the dead of night, away from the crowds, when he was at his most vulnerable and his most alone. And yet, once again, that's part of the, of the plan down of uh, verse 56. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might, might be fulfilled. Perhaps Jesus was thinking of this uh, prediction from the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great and divide the spoils with strong. Why? Because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah predicts that Jesus will be in the same category. He'll be numbered with the transgressors, same category as revolutionaries and terrorists. That's why Jesus says in verse 55, am I leading a rebellion? They're, they're treating him like, a, like a, a, a rebel. And what is surprising in the final sentence of verse 56 is that then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Everyone, including Peter, including John, including Matthew who wrote this gospel, only a few moments ago, these disciples were willing to fight their way out of the situation with swords. But at the sight of Jesus meekly, willingly walking into custody, they desert him as hour of, of his greatest need. They run away. And once again, uh, Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled, as Jesus said back in verse 31. You can have a look back uh, there later. Brothers and sisters, Jesus had the option, had loads of time, not to go to the cross. He could have defeated his enemies with angelic army. He could have uh, done anything to get out of the cross. And yet he willingly fulfilled the plan that he and his Father and the Holy Spirit came up with 
before the beginning of time and revealed in the Old Testaments. Jesus willingly went to the cross for you. He willingly endured the hypocritical kisses of Judas, who should have been his friends, for you. Who willingly ordered his disciples to put down their weapons for you. He willingly refused to call on an angelic army, which would have got him out of trouble, and, and, and to fight his way out for you. It wasn't a tragic accident. He wasn't cornered. He didn't have his, un, his unwilling arm twisted by an overbearing heavenly father. He did it all willingly. This is our Savior we're looking at. This is our God's. Rejoice in Him. Adore Him. Move your hearts from whatever to, to, wow, He did this for me willingly. He didn't have to, but He did. As we ponder on the Old Testament being fulfilled, I think it also reminds us that we are part of a bigger plan if we're trusting in Jesus. You know, we're a small group of ordinary people living on the edge of London, and if we're, following, uh, if we're following Jesus, we are part of an extraordinary plan, a plan that was dreamt up in the wisdom of God before time began to rescue a chosen people forgiven and dearly loved for himself, a plan that was beginning to be revealed little by little in the Old Testaments as those pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah, God's kingly rescuer, a plan fulfilled in the birth and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus in the New Testaments. Our ordinary lives, and sometimes they can feel very ordinary, can't they? Our ordinary lives are part of a bigger plan, uh, a bigger uh, um, plan of the whole world, a plan fulfilled in the life of Jesus. We are looking forward to a time when the new heavens and the new earth, where we dwell with God who made us, who redeemed us, who loved us. And it's worth looking up from the business of life every now and again, the ordinance of life, and marveling at the bigger storyline that began with Genesis and ended with Revelation, and that we are part of it. You are included if you are trusting in Jesus. And it's all because that Jesus willingly went to the cross for you and for me. So second... Watch as Jesus willingly endured unjust suffering for us. That's verses 57 to 68. So Jesus is frog-marched from the the Garden of Gethsemane. That's outside the walls of Jerusalem. He goes down the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem to stand before the high priest Caiaphas. He was the big cheese of the, the Jewish people, religious leader. And this kangaroo court has already been assembled. Uh, Jesus would have to stand before the Sanhedrin, which is the 70 of the top Jewish religious leaders of the day. Uh, So the equivalence for for Jesus would be to be hauled up today in front of the Archbishop of Canterbury and all the bishops. That's the equivalence. He's he's been told to report and answer uh, before the religious authorities. We long for justice today, don't we? There's absolutely no sense of justice here. No seeking the truth here. The minds of the religious leaders are already made up. You can see that in verse 59. Verse 59 says this, The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. They'd already decided on the verdict. 
The trial was simply a show trial to find reasons to justify their verdict of death. We want to kill Jesus. Let's find the evidence to kill Jesus. Nothing that Jesus said or did at that time would have changed their minds. They'd already decided Jesus must die. If you're looking, if you're someone who's looking to Christianity, then we really are glad that you're here. Can I warn you against being like the Sanhedrin and having your mind made up already against Jesus? Because someone who has a made-up mind against Jesus, that he never existed or was just a man or wasn't God's or was just a figment of uh, imagination or maybe he's a good man and his followers took things too far, if you've already got a made-up mind for that, then you'll overlook any evidence to the contrary. There's a phrase for it. It's called confirmation bias. We've got our verdict and we'll look for the evidence that supports our verdict. And so what a tragedy, if that is you, if you've already made up your mind against Jesus, what a tragedy to reject Jesus because your mind is made up now and then discover at the end of time you overlooked evidence that pointed towards him being God because you had a made up mind already. Look, the Sanhedrin want Jesus dead, and that's what's going to happen. And they want him dead quickly. They don't want him hanging around. You know, if, if, if the trial takes a few days, then, it, uh, then the, the crowds may riot. The, you know, Jesus is popular with the crowds. And so false witnesses, verse 60, are brought forward to testify against Jesus. But no two people can agree on their story. So these, yeah, they're trying to, get, you know, to try and convict Jesus, but no two people are saying the same thing. It's only when two false witnesses come forward and report in verse uh, 61, uh, which says, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So even, even though these two men gave exactly the same report, it was a gross misrepresentation of what Jesus said. If you go to John's gospel, Jesus said that when the Jews destroyed the temple of his body, he would rebuild that body, not the Jerusalem temple, but his body, rebuild it in three days. So these two, two guys who are giving false uh, accusations are twisting his words. However, because these two men said the same thing, well, that was admissible now as evidence in the Jewish court. And so the high priest turns to Jesus and presses Jesus to answer, what would you do in that situation? If you knew that your words had been twisted, if you knew that that's not what you said, if you knew that you were on trial for your life, what would you do? I think I would try and argue my case. I would say, no, you've got it wrong. This is what I meant. The surprising thing is, if you have a look down, Jesus remains silent. He doesn't answer. He doesn't say anything. Why, why does he not say anything? It, it doesn't say explicitly, but once again, I think Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled. Listen to what Isaiah uh, says uh, in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before a shear is a silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus remained silent because he was walking in the footsteps of the Messiah described by the prophet Isaiah many years ago. And those footsteps led to suffering, led to punishment, led to death 
on the cross led to, ultimately, like lamb to the slaughter. And Jesus' silence seemed to provoke Caiaphas, the high priest, who charged Jesus under an oath from God to say, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Are you God's kingly rescuer, the Messiah, come to rescue us? Are you the divine Son of God? That's what his question was. And Jesus confirms it, verse 64, you have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. In his reply, Jesus is, is, is putting together two passages from the Old Testament. One is Psalm 110, the other one is Daniel 7. He puts them together and both passages point towards Jesus being given ultimate divine authority that only belongs to God. In effect, Jesus is saying to his judges, you, know, you may have authority over me now, but one day the tables are going to be turned and you will see me with divine authority over you. And that is enough to convict Jesus. The high priest believes Jesus has committed blasphemy, which is saying something that dishonors God. To show how seriously he takes blasphemy, he tears his clothes to say that this is really serious. And he calls on the Sanhedrin to act, and they conclude what they were always wanting to conclude. Jesus is worthy of death. And at this, the Sanhedrin turns on Jesus. Very weighty verses, verses that strike to our hearts in verses 67 and 68. Then they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Can you think of anything more disgusting or offensive for someone to spit in your face? I can't. Just imagine how innocent Jesus felt. Here was the creator of the universe, the, the person who flung stars into space, allowing those creatures he created to spit in his face, to slap him, to punch him, to mock him, prophesy Messiah, who hit you? Come on. And the deep irony in all of this, these Bible guys, these 70 Sanhedrin, they knew their Old Testament backwards. They should have paused and put two and two together because as they were beating Jesus, as they were spitting on Jesus, as they were mocking Jesus, their minds should have gone back to Isaiah 50, which would predict what would happen when God's Messiah came. This is what it says. This is, this is uh, the Messiah speaking. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. They should have looked around at their peers and, and think to themselves, look, hang on, I remember Isaiah 50. And Isaiah 50 says that God's Messiah will be mocked and, and beaten and spat at. That's what we're doing. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus is the Messiah. But they didn't think that. They wanted Jesus dead. And as we watch innocent Jesus enduring this vile, unjust suffering, and it was unjust, it was vile, I'm sure that should move us if we are Christians. Jesus endured unjust suffering for you, 
He went through it for you. He endured unjust suffering on the way to the cross so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be brought back into relationship with God. He did that so that instead of receiving judgment and condemnation from God's hands, we would receive forgiveness and life and hope. He endured this for you and he endured this for me. And this is the, the Jesus in which we glory, the weak and despised and alone Jesus. That should be changing our whatevers into wows. Thank you, Jesus. As I read verses 67 68 this week, I felt uncomfortable because I knew Jesus went through that for the sins that I committed. He allowed himself to be spat on in the face for my sin and for your sin. If that doesn't break the familiarity and, 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 and change our whatevers to wows, then there's something wrong with our hearts. Watch as Jesus endured unjust suffering for us. And third, look at Peter to see why Jesus needed to go to the cross. Look at Peter to see why Jesus needs to go to the cross. The scene switches away from the beating, the spitting, the mocking, uh, to Peter uh, warming himself in the fire in the courtyard. He's followed Jesus at a distance. And a servant girl approaches Peter and says, verse 69, I'm sure I saw you with that Galilean man, Jesus. I'm sure you were with him. And here is big, bustling Peter, blue-collar worker, rough and ready fisherman, uh, ready to chop off ears in defense of Jesus. And he stands face to face with a servant girl, and you think at that point, you only expect one winner. It's going to be Peter. How is he going to be scared of someone who's smaller than him? And so verse 70 is a shock. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And so Peter retreats from the courtyard to the gateway. He's moving away from, physically moving away from where Jesus is. Spiritually and symbolically, he's also moving away from Jesus. And unfortunately, a little while later, another servant girl spots him and says to the people around him, verse 71, this man was definitely with Jesus. And Peter, verse 72, denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. I don't know him. More time passes by until a group of them approach Peter and says, oh, Jesus is from Galilee, and Galilee has a particular accent, and you speak in the Galilean accent, and you must have been with him. And this time, Peter goes to even greater lengths to deny that, that, that he knows Jesus. Verse 74, then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. That phrase, calling down curses, it could be, on the one hand, it could be that Peter was saying, may God curse me if I'm lying. It could be the curse might be calling down on himself. Perhaps more shockingly, the alternative could be that Peter could have been calling down curses on Jesus, trying to distance himself as far, far as possible from Jesus. And all of a sudden, verse 74 tells us that a cock crowed. Verse 75, then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Here is enthusiastic, impetuous Peter, ready to shoot his mouth off in support of Jesus, saying, I'm never going to fall away from, Jesus, from you, Jesus. I'm going to stick with you. 
you know, ready for a fight, you know, to fight for Jesus with a sword. And when the crunch comes, he denies and disowns Jesus three times. And if you want an explanation of why Jesus had to, to die on the cross, if you wanted a case study, an example of why Jesus had to go to the cross, it's Peter. Peter's your man. You know, Peter disowned Jesus. He distanced himself from Jesus. He rejected Jesus. And the Bible word for that is sin. And haven't we all done that at one time or another? Haven't we all disowned Jesus at some point in our lives, maybe before we became Christians, maybe at the moment? Even as Christians, haven't we kept silent about Jesus when we should have spoken? And God is a God of justice, and that sin has to be paid for. You know, if, if, if sin is to be forgiven, either we pay the price or someone else pays the price. Uh, and, and that is Jesus on the cross. You know, Peter was eventually f- forgiven, but for that to happen, Jesus needed to take the punishment of Peter's three denials on the cross. And Peter shows us why Jesus needs to go to the cross. Look, you know, Peter didn't do anything particularly scandalous there, did he? He didn't sleep around. He didn't murder anyone. In one sense, it's a very normal kind, you know, very respectable kind of sin. You know, we see it in uh, everyone around us who, who say, no, I don't know Jesus. I reject Jesus. We see it in ourselves when we should have spoken for Jesus when we didn't. And yet Jesus needed to go to the cross, not just for the really, um, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, outlandish sins, but also for those when we deny him, when we reject him. And it shows to us that, that sin is serious. I think there's also a secondary lesson we can learn from the example of Peter. There's a second lesson we can learn, because I think he's a picture of a believer who overestimated their strength to resist sin and underestimated the power of temptation. Overestimated his strength to resist sin and underestimated the power of temptation. Peter thought he was strong enough to stand with Jesus, but he fell. When he should have been praying in the garden of Gethsemane, keep me from temptation, he was asleep, not praying. I wonder if there are Christians, believers here this morning, who are overestimating their strength to resist sin and underestimating the power of temptation. Is that you, if you're a Christian? Are you putting yourselves in situations that are close to sin? Are you walking close to the cliff edge of temptation because there's a little bit of a thrill in doing that and you're saying to yourself, a bit like Peter, it's fine, I'm okay, I'll never fall. At a previous church I I belonged to, I I, I was was ministering, I heard that a believer who worked for a Christian organization was sharing his bed with his girlfriend. So I went to speak to him about it and he said, don't worry, we don't cross the line, we we don't have sex. Uh, if I'm honest, I'm not sure, quite sure I believed him, but um, I'm sure lines were crossed that he wasn't telling me about. But even if he was speaking truthfully, he was pr- a prime example of someone overestimating their strength to resist sin and underestimating the power of temptation. Brothers and sisters, if you're flirting with sin, whether that be in the area of money or sex or power or whatever it is, because money and sex and power generally the three big ones, then let Peter be a warning to you. Repent and come away from the cliff edge. Look at Peter to see why Jesus needed to go to the cross. 
So has God's Word done its work in our hearts this morning? Has it shattered our familiarity with Jesus going to the cross? Have we seen afresh the great cost that Jesus paid to get there? Have we realized that it was our sin that made him get spat spat out of the face, to be punched and slapped and mocked, and to walk that path to the cross? Because we go towards Easter, as we go into thinking about the cross for for another year, that cross on which Jesus died, have our hearts been moved from, well, whatever, I, I know this, to wow, thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me there and then. I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we're going to sing in response. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we ask for forgiveness for the times that we've allowed familiarity to breed contempt for Jesus. Thank you so much that he walked willingly to the cross. Thank you so much that he endured injustice on injustice for us. Thank you so much that he died to save sinners like Peter and sinners like us. Father, we stand in awe of him and we adore him. We thank you for him. Father, we pray for those of us whose hearts haven't been moved at all, who maybe are Christians but aren't saying, wow. We pray for those who are still saying, you know, whatever. Father, please convict of sin Help us to run to Jesus' forgiveness and by your Holy Spirit be changing our hearts by the gospel so that we begin to continue to say, wow, thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we've seen Jesus willing